If you're going to do a, a mix of 90 songs, a quintessential 90 song, a shout to the Lord. That's a great one to end with. Um, they'll, yeah, they'll be back in a few minutes for communion when we do that together to lead us through a, another worship set. I can barely get my mind around the fact that that stuff was from 30 years ago. Remarkable. I, I can't get my mind around the fact that it's August 1st already, right? The, like, where did my summer go? I'm grateful that we started um, the Hard Question series back in May. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through this series of Hard Questions, 12th one in the series this morning. This one was supposed to be on the Trinity this morning, but because we're doing communion, uh, I recognized it would take more time than what I had available to set up the Trinity and, and talk through that. So I decided to do something easy on Revelation, okay? So... The hard question that came about is, um, if the book of Revelation is meant for the edification of the church, why is it so hard to understand? Legitimate question. More simply, if you look at your notes this morning, you'll see that I condensed it down to, how do I understand Revelation? How do I make sense of this? Well, we're going to examine it this morning because there's a lot of opinions before we dive into it, I would just really love to pray with you and uh, ask God to be our teacher and our guide through this. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray that as we work through your word, that you would give us insight, uh, that the power of the Holy Spirit would be felt in this place, and we would know what it is to have you be our teacher, our guide, let your word speak. Father, I do ask, though, that it wouldn't just be for information's sake and and that we would be responsible enough to translate it to action. So use it in our life, especially for people that we know who are far from you, and our friends and family members who have questions. And, and God, I pray that you would use us to be able to address questions that they have in a really loving way. But teach us now so that we be able to speak into the lives of other people. And we pray for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Scripture is very, very clear that there is a battle that's taking place all around us. And the battle for good and the battle against evil is obviously been going on for thousands of years. It might feel to you, though, that evil is no longer lurking in the shadows in the day that you live in. Like, it, it's right there. Things that used to be done in the dark and in the secret are now done in broad daylight to the degree that some feel that Satan has gained the upper hand. And so the question continues to come to me, and especially in the last year, people continue to ask, are, are we going to continue in this state of chaos forever? Well, here's a question. Is everything that difficult happens the result of Satan's schemes? Well, no, not necessarily. Sometimes... Difficult things that come into our life are just the result of poor choices or being stupid, as in my case this morning at 7 o'clock this morning. Um, some of you who know me know that I study about 30 hours a week when I, I get ready for this stuff, and um, my administrative time is up and beyond that, but my concentrated theological study is about 30 hours a week, almost every week, weekend and week out, never seems to fail. And last night, um, around 9 o'clock, I'm finally putting my laptop away, I just was concentrating on these things that we're going to talk about today, and I put it in my bag, zipped my bag up, and set it aside to grab it this morning. And, 
And I did indeed grab it this morning as I'm going out the door about seven o'clock and I was driving my wife's car, which sits lower than mine. So I set it on the roof of her car. Yeah, you know where this is going. So I, I head out the garage and, and when I set it on the roof of the car, I'm thinking to myself, don't forget, you just set it on the roof of the car. Um, and sure enough, I got here to the church and got into the parking lot and opened up the door to pull out my bag and it's not there. And immediately the, mind, the thing that came into my mind was, oh, you stupid idiot, what did you do? Dummy, I can't believe it, because my notes are all in there, right? And so I'm thinking, where did it fall off at? Has somebody crushed it with their car? And so I called my son Derek right away and said, hey, if anybody's looking for me this morning, here's what happened and I'm gone. So I, I fly back towards home, watching the road all the way along the way, and sure enough, I get within a mile of home and there it is laying in the middle of the road. Um, gratefully, here's not an advertisement for Thule cases, but I'm telling you, those rubberized Thule cases are pretty great. Um, the, the case is really banged up, but the computer works perfect. So yeah, I'm thrilled about that. <laughs> Nonetheless, some, some of the choices we make are just because we're stupid and it produces difficult things in our life. And some of it is because of this fallen planet that we live on. There's difficult things that happen. We talked about that last week. And then there's the overarching purposes of God, that He's sovereign and He's stewarding over everything that happens. So we don't have to wonder, is this mess going to lead to something? Fortunately, the Bible opens a door for us and it provides a glimpse into future things. And we are able to gain an understanding into things going on beyond the realm of humanity here on this planet, beyond the realm of just ordinary humanity, what we're able to see. And the door that I'm speaking of allows us to delve into the, the very portals of heaven. Let me put a section of a verse for you up on the screen. It comes from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, I looked and behold a door standing open. That's just a section of what John's beginning to introduce of four different visions that he saw, each with its own door standing open each represented by different chapters. Let me give you the full context to the verse. He says it this way in verse 1, chapter 4, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Did you notice the word like? Like the sound of a trumpet. Like is the most repeated word throughout the book of Revelation. It occurs over and over and over again. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Up until the time of John writing these things down that we have an opportunity to examine, these things were pre previously known only to God. Up until the first century, at the very end of the first century, this is information that was held closely to the vest God didn't reveal. I mentioned that there were four door openings, and if you're keeping notes this morning, by the way, it's not too late to grab the notes back by the, the um, center of the atrium back there, and if you're watching online, you can download the notes, but get ready to write lots of detail. People told me after the first service that I had to slow down, so I'm going to do my best to slow down if you promise not to look at your watch, okay? I'm going to slow down just a little bit so you can take in the detail and, and hear these things. Revelation chapter 4 
And Revelation chapter 11 and chapter 15 and chapter 19, each of those is the beginning of a new vision or a door that's opening up. I recall reading this stuff as an adolescent. And as a teenager, I was absolutely fascinated, wondering what in the world is this all about? And today, after many years of focused study that are in the rearview mirror, I am still fascinated and captivated by the message and by the mystery of these things. Today, for a person who doesn't know much about biblical literature, opening up the book of Revelation is kind of like someone who's not familiar with stock reports trying to read the Dow Jones averages at the end of a day. They can't make sense of it. What, what in the world is this revealing to me? There's a lot of common confusions around the book of Revelation, so let me just give you a couple practical things to keep in mind. It was written in chronological order. So when you read it, when you begin at chapter 1, know that the series of events that are taking place are set on a timeline, marching all the way through to the very end of the book. There's only two chapters where they're not part of the chronological order, but the rest of it is a series that's all part of the storyline. That would help you to understand that. It would also help you, if you're going to study the book of Revelation, to locate where the scene is at. In other words, am I reading about earth at this point, or am I reading about heaven? And ask yourself that question on a regular basis. Is this scene on earth, or is this scene in heaven? One of the more common confusions is around the symbolism, and John uses a lot of symbolism. Now, there's a great strength to the symbolism that he used, and especially in the first century. One aspect or one strength of it is that if the Romans tried to use the book of Revelation to prosecute the Christians, they'd have a really hard time because they couldn't make sense of it. Well, what in the world is this talking about? So that would be a strength, but that's kind of an aside. Here's the strength of it from a perspective of studying it today. Symbolism is not weakened by time. John is able to utilize these, these great images and assemble them in a way that have encouraged believers for millennia because the symbolism of the images haven't changed. And let me give you an example of that. What symbolism does, it grants, it grants an understanding of things that the Lord is unveiling for us. And the images produce a mentally visible image in your mind. It, in other words, it paints a picture. Here's an example. If I use the word evil, that's a pretty abstract term. I don't know what just popped in your mind, but something popped in your mind when I said the word evil. John wasn't satisfied just to use the word evil. He paints the picture of evil. And so he describes a woman holding a chalice in her hand, being drunk on the blood of the saints. That's a pretty graphic image. That's an image that will stay with you, and he paints the image of evil in that way. That's part of the symbolism. But at the same time, I would encourage you not to let your imagination run wild. In Hebrew and Greek, whether you know the language or not, that you can grasp this concept, the numbers, uh, the letters in the alphabet represent numbers or numerical systems. So in Hebrew, uh, Aleph, A would be one. And Beth, Beth, B-E-T-H is two. It's a numerical system. In Greek, you have alpha, one, beta, two. Well, you can see very quickly that people would begin assembling names into numbers. Jesus, for instance, in the Greek language is C-F-2. 
Well, when John painted the picture of the Antichrist, the beast being the number 666, people very quickly took the Greek language and the Hebrew language and tried to assemble in their mind, okay, who could this be? Looking for someone that it would point to. Well, it's not hard to take Nero Caesar's name and come up with 666. And by the way, his nickname among the people of Rome was the beast, and people arrived at the conclusion Well, he's got to be it. He's got to be the Antichrist. But obviously, clearly, he's not, because here we are today, 2,000 years later, and this is not the millennial kingdom, by the way. At least I hope you think it's not. So obviously, Nero was not the Antichrist. The characters and the symbols that you find in the book of Revelation and the events and the numbers, nearly all of them were written about in some way or described in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and in Daniel and in Isaiah. So in some places, the symbols are explained in the Old Testament. In some places, they're understood from the Old Testament. But here's what you need to process. In some places, they're not explained at all. And we're left wondering with mystery, what is that? In other words, there is a line of what can and cannot be grasped, and that's okay. Keep in mind that revelation is spiritual code. And by that I mean it's code for believers in Jesus Christ. It was written to the church. It was intended for the church. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It kind of sets it apart in the sense that for the church, it was intended to be a tool that would equip the church to understand what's going to happen in the last days. So those who refuse Jesus as their Lord and Savior cannot expect to comprehend the book because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives insight into the things of God. So I would say it's spiritual code. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of that. I don't know if you know that Daniel in the Old Testament, the book Daniel, is considered the revelation of the Old Testament. Daniel was given information about the future. Let me show you something that Daniel writes in chapter 12, verse 9. The angel is speaking to him, and he said, "'Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time.'" Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And catch this, none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So Daniel's supposed to seal up the things that were revealed to him, and God says the wicked won't get it, but those who have insight will get it. And then along comes the book of Revelation, and people began assembling the pieces of Revelation and Daniel and be able to point to things of the future. 1 Corinthians also speaks to the same issue. Look with me on the screen at chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. See, that's, that's the issue there. That's why unbelievers find the book completely incomprehensible. It wasn't intended for them. They don't have the Holy Spirit, and they can't make sense of it. So this book was written as a tool for the church for those who willingly shout to the Lord, serve Him as King, follow Him in His majesty, but it wasn't simply written to satisfy a curiosity that you might have. Do you know that when both Daniel and John received this information about future things, that their reaction 
was to fall on their face as dead men. They, they fainted from the overwhelming information. It wasn't just curiosity to them. They were struck by what God was going to do. We understand from the historical records that the authorship was by John. I've referred to him several times for you. He had time alone on an island. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the island is called Patmos. It's about six miles by 10 miles in size. Very, very tiny island off from the, uh, what they would call Asia Minor coast. We would call it Asia Minor in, in the Adriatic, in the sea. It is a really small Roman penal colony, like a prison system. Why he's there is because Caesar demanded that he would be worshiped. And John refused to worship him. A government was coming down hard on Christians, and it was beginning to persecute Christians. During the time of Nero, all the way to the time of Domitian, those two Caesars decided that they would enforce a policy of Caesar worship or emperor worship. So Domitian saw himself as God. And he demanded that people would bow down to him. To the degree that he actually named his firstborn son the Son of God. He named his mother Domitia a goddess. And he insisted that everyone within the Roman Empire, which was essentially the world population, bow down and worship him as God, but John wouldn't do that. And he's the last surviving apostle. All who know him, who know, whom he knew are, are dead by this point. Most of them have been executed for the sake of Jesus. And he's a very old man living on this desolate, barren island. And life expectancy in the rock quarry that he was sentenced to was one year if you were a young man. Because from dusk to dawn, dawn to dusk, I'm sorry, I got it backwards, from dawn to dusk, they're breaking rocks in the bottom of the quarry all day long. It wasn't intended for the elderly, let alone somebody who's nearly 90 or perhaps in his 90s at this point. What's he doing there? He had refused to worship Domitian as God. So the churches in Asia Minor have begun to feel the boot of persecution from their own government. Their government has begun to come against them as believers in Jesus. And it appears that the pastor of the church in Ephesus has already been killed for the name of Jesus. Look with me on the screen at this. It's part of Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. I know where you dwell, and he's talking to the church in Ephesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Well, Antipas, perhaps as the pastor of that church, gave up his life for the name of Christ. John has refused to bow. He's been made an example, so he's been sent off to this island. How do we know that John was the author? Well, in Revelation 1, he actually calls himself out and says, I, John, a disciple of the Lord. But not just that. I told you when we looked at the believability of the Bible in May that there were external sources that validate the things of the Bible. I'm going to give you two of those external sources right now. Some of you have studied this history and you know this, but the majority of people don't know this. Uh, Irenaeus 
is an individual who wrote in the first century. Irenaeus was an understudy of Polycarp, a disciple. Polycarp was a disciple of John. So if you will, a, a grandchild, a grand disciple of John himself. Look what Irenaeus wrote in 125 AD. And if anyone will devote a close attention to those things which are stated by the prophets with regard to the time of the end, and those which John, the disciple of the Lord, saw in the apocalypse, he will find that the nations are to receive the same plagues universally as Egypt then did particularly. Another one of those external sources is Tertullian. And around 205 AD, in the third century, he wrote this. You'll see this quote on the screen. It's in your notes as well. But we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem, let down from heaven, which the apostle also calls our mother from above. This both Ezekiel and had knowledge and of the apostle John beheld. Obviously, he's talking about the millennial kingdom there, filling people in on the information. Here's the historical setting before we dive into some detail. This is being written to seven churches, not unlike New Hope. People who study the Word of God, who identify themselves with Jesus, people who lift up the cup and they lift up the bread, they celebrate communion like you're about to do. But within those seven churches, Jesus had things to say to them because some things are about to happen to them. There's some things that they need to understand about persecution. Now, they live on a road system. The road system is connected by a big circle. It, it goes from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea in a big circle, and that's who these seven churches are made up by. They don't know it, but a storm is about to break out upon them in full fury with the weight of the government pressing down on them in order to exterminate them. For those individuals facing persecution and through millennia for every Christian facing persecution where they're at in their day and in their age, Revelation provides the central message of hope. And the message is very, very clear. Even though it seems like evil is rampant and out of control, God is in sovereign control of all events. Say amen if you agree with that. We shout to the Lord because of that reality. He has a plan. He's working his strategy. There's nothing that happens outside of his control. But this churches, these seven are about to face a persecution. So without going too far into this, let me just for a couple moments break this down for you. And we'll just use chapter one as an example, just one verse. Look with me on the screen at this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think of the word apocalypse, you think of catastrophe because that's the way in the English world we translate it. But the revelation is apocalypsis. And it's in your notes this morning, it's this particular Greek word that's talking about a revealing, a disclosure, a manifestation. We use the word apocalypse to refer to catastrophe. The Bible in the Greek language actually uses it to refer to a revealing more accurately, to expose something in full view, which had previously been hidden. 
Now, when it's referring to a person, it means that that person has become clearly visible. So revelation, if you will, think of it as like a backstage pass. If after the service you came up on the platform and you decided, I just want to poke my head around and you went behind the curtain, you'd go backstage, you'd see things that you can't see in any other way unless you go back there. That's the way revelation is. It's a backstage pass in order to see things you wouldn't have previously known. So we have the unveiling happening here, the Holy Spirit pulling back the curtain in order to grant the privilege of seeing Jesus in the future and his future purposes for this planet. Now, there's a very specific distinction I want to give you. I told you that Daniel is like the Old Testament revelation. There's something specific to Daniel, though. Look with me on the screen at this, Daniel 12.4. Close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. So Daniel's finished writing down the things that he saw about the future, but God said, don't give it out. Seal it up. People are going to increase in knowledge. They'll be moving to and fro around the planet. There'll be global activity. And then John comes along, and John's given the revelation of the future. And the prophecy that Daniel was ordered to seal up until the end is now unsealed because of the general advance of civilization. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 22 is the very end of the book. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Why the change? Well, God the Son came after Daniel and became Jesus the man. And the crucifixion took place, and the resurrection, and the ascension, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. All those changes have taken place, and God has ushered in the last days, and He's fulfilling His promise of the things that previously had been hidden about His purposes. So what Revelation does is it contains truth that had been concealed, but now it's revealed. And understand, this revelation is from Jesus himself, and it's about Jesus. It's primarily a revelation about him. I want you to see Dr. Tenney's quote. Dr. Merrill Tenney said it, he described it this way. He is not incidental to its action. He is its chief subject. So how is revelation different than the rest of the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reveal Jesus. It's like, I get to know Jesus there. You do, but you get to know Jesus, God the Son who became Jesus the man in his humility, how he emptied himself and came to die on the cross. We see that in Philippians 2.6. You know that verse. You've heard it from me many times. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. But what Revelation does is it presents Jesus in his exaltation. Every time you see Jesus appear on the scene in the book, every vision of him is of majesty and of power. And let me give you an example of that. Look at what John saw, chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest 
with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John had not seen Jesus that way. He'd seen the dead crucified Jesus. He'd seen the resurrected Jesus. He saw the ascending Jesus. He even saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he didn't see this Jesus. No wonder he fell on his feet like a dead man. So every time Jesus is revealed in Revelation, he's revealed in majesty and in glory. And he came for a specific reason, to show his servants what must soon take place, what will happen. Look with me on the screen at Revelation 1, the things which must soon take place. In what events, in what way do I understand these events that they will soon take place. Another Greek word in your notes this morning is entekai. And entekai means rapidly or quickly. We use the word soon and something pops in our mind thinking, well, we're talking about like in the next hour, or the next day or the next week. And that's not what entekai means. It means when the events begin to happen, once they begin, they will rapidly unfold and it's compressed into a seven-year period of time. A very short span, if you will, compared to the age of the earth, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history, all taken down to a seven-year period of time and compressed and quickly catches people by surprise. One of the things that shocked people most during 2020 at the height of COVID was how quickly governments moved to seize control. Caught people by surprise. Like, my freedoms have been taken away. And people around the planet were shocked at how fast their government could move if it needed to move in order to put things in place. And it gives you a new perspective on the book of Revelation in terms of how quickly systems can move if they need to move. But it causes people to realize, like, I've always had my freedom. Well, most of us today who are alive in this auditorium or watching online, we weren't alive during World War II, but the same thing happened during that period of time. Governments moved very, very quickly to put systems in place in order to seize control. That's part and parcel to what governments do. In John's writing, when this happens, it's going to happen very quickly, very rapidly, in a very short period of time. The things, though, he writes about, what things? Well, make no mistake whatsoever, the book of Revelation is a book of judgment, and you have to study it that way. God is just, and sin will be punished. Amen? what's going to happen. There's no gray area on that. It's very black and white. So there's no confusion of right or wrong when you come to the book of Revelation. There's no weak tolerance of evil because there's no gray areas. But there's also no mention of the lamb that has been slain without also mentioning the wrath of the lamb. And there's the water of life, but there's also the lake of fire. And you have God wiping away every tear and abolishing death, but his enemies are subdued and destroyed. 
and you discover hordes of demonic warriors coming up from hell in opposition to the king of kings, but God pours out his wrath on them and they are obliterated and the colors are very vivid and nature convulses and the struggle is colossal. You would even say global, but a brighter day is to come. However, writer of Hebrews even says this once more, God's voice has to shake the earth. The sound of his presence will shake the earth once more because it will take only seven years to wipe out the power of the Antichrist and the systems of world government that we know literally will be crushed by the wrath of God. So here's some details for you. I, I would encourage you to study it as someone who's open to learning. Many times when we open books and we study things, we come at it with preconceived ideas. And here's an example of that. Then one of the most common questions that comes to me in the course of a year is from individuals who've recently lost a family member. And they have family members, they believe in heaven. And they usually will say, can, can my family member, can my mother or my brother, can my child see what's going on on planet Earth? Do they know what I'm doing? Well, I usually will engage them in conversation, but invariably, I'll take them to a passage that's in Revelation to help them understand that a little more fully. I've lost count of how many times somebody has come and asked me that question, but invariably, I will always take them to this passage about the saints who are gathered around the throne of God, specifically at the altar, and they begin engaging in conversation. Now, watch this with me. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. They, this is the saints in heaven, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been killed, would be completed also. Now, these are people who died during the tribulation period, that very short seven-year period of time. But clearly, they're aware. They're aware of what's going on, on earth. They're, they're aware that God has a plan. They're aware that he hasn't executed his plan yet. They're aware of how they died. They're aware that the murderers who killed them have not been avenged yet. So they say, how long, O Lord? How long before you carry out vengeance against these ones who killed us? You would not know that detail, that insight from any place else in the Bible that I can find other than in the book of Revelation and being a willing student to approach it and say, there's something going on between the lines here. I need to slow down and really study this. Now, logically, when I have that conversation with people, then they transfer over to the next question, which is, okay, so if I'm aware and I, I know things that are going on, what about people that I know in my social circle that are not saved? What about family members that I know that are not saved? Am I going to be aware of that too? What do I do with that? Well, it doesn't take a big leap to see that these individuals knew that they had been murdered. So it's not too much of a leap to understand that they're aware of the specifics of the lives and the status of those lives. So here's where the next question comes in. How is there joy in eternity if those close to me have perished 
and I'm aware of it. Here's the best way that I found to address that issue. You will have complete memory. By that I mean you won't have a memory wipe. God doesn't do a memory wipe on you when you step into eternity. How do I know that? I can actually back that up from Scripture. So that you only know nothing but heaven for all eternity and and not aware of the things of earth, that doesn't seem like that would be God carrying out His purposes, but you can also support that. Why wouldn't He do that? So that you can have a more complete worship of Him. Let me take you to another passage in Revelation. Watch this. It comes from Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. And if you're new to church, that's a whole lot. It's just a lot, a lot, a countless number of people. And thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. How do I know God doesn't do a memory wipe? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Slain for what? From the foundation of the world for my sin. How can you worship the lamb that was slain if you have no knowledge of the past? You have to be aware of what God did for you. That's why you can worship because you have historical information. So God doesn't perform a memory wipe, especially of what he did for us so that you could actually appreciate and participate in praising God for what you've been saved from. Now, finally, I know we're getting really close to communion here, and I just want you to hear these last components. You find John, as he writes this, using very descriptive language, as I referred to, but he also uses the word like a lot. And he's matching the era of the first century that he lived in. And he's trying to give us descriptors of things that he's seeing. So you find him saying, it's like this and it's like this. And he keeps reaching for images to bring to our mind this sense of information. I've had someone visit with me a few weeks ago who said, I think I found in the book of Revelation a a modern day representation of drones. I said, okay, well, let's go look at that verse and then we'll have that conversation. And so go with me to this passage, Revelation 9, 7. Starts in verse 2, actually. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. That's pretty graphic. Verse 3, then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Here comes the description with all the likes. Watch how many times the word like is used. Verse 7. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. 
and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name is, in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. I stood in Muskegon, Michigan in the 1970s at the L.C. Walker Arena, and I listened to an individual who was an expert on the book of Revelation say, you know what that is, people? That's a modern-day helicopter. Okay, maybe. He was being really sincere. He was being very, very genuine. But here we are 30 years later, 40, 50 years later, um, and this individual wouldn't say that's modern-day helicopters. Other individuals might say, I think we're looking at drones here. Maybe. What we know because of the generation that we live in in 2021 is things have changed technologically, but God's Word hasn't changed. And John's trying to use these descriptors to say, it's like this, it's like this, but I'm trying to describe it for you. John wrote these things in a full and immediate anticipation that there would be a recognition of this message as being worthy to be read in the churches because it's the Word of God coming from Jesus Christ Himself to the church. So watch chapter 1, verse 3, in light of where you're at this morning. It says this, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Most theologians today, most historians think that's the last thing that John ever wrote down. That after God gave him all 22 chapters of the revelation of future things, John went back to the beginning and said, you guys are not going to believe what you're up for. You're going to be so blessed. Blessed are you if you read those and you hear the words of this prophecy. Did you notice, though, a change in the structure in the sentence when you saw that? Singular, he who reads, became plural, those who hear. He's describing the first century church services. Revelation was first read aloud within the local churches. And most believe that they read all 21 chapters in one setting. You think it's hard to sit here for an hour and 10 minutes. 21 chapters. How about if I just start reading the book of Revelation? Completely new information to them to drink in. It was a common practice for the church to gather, for one person to read to them, for everyone to hear because the writing materials were so scarce and so expensive. The best a church could hope for is to own one copy of God's Word. Now, that's an interesting detail, but there's an element that's really easily passed over when you read it. Look again at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. There's a special blessing to you, to those who read and to hear and obey the message of Revelation. Last Greek word, and then we're about to go to communion. This particular word, tereo, the word heed means to be on guard, to watch, to keep your eyes on the horizon. Blessed is the one who reads it, who hears it, and watches for these things to unfold. So John's saying, listen really carefully. Take this to heart. It'll be a special blessing on you because the next event on God's calendar is near. Their New Hope Church 
is nothing more that needs to happen for these events to begin. I personally fall into the camp of being a pre-tribulationist. I believe that the church is going to be taken away or resurrected, if you will, before the tribulation period. You may not land in that place. I can talk to you later about why I land on that. I'm going to actually teach on it in a couple of weeks on the rapture of the church. There's nothing more that needs to happen now for God to do these things. And if you study the book of Revelation, you're going to find the final political setup of the world, and you're going to find the destruction of Satan and the warning that comes at the end that the church could fall into a place of complacency and not take these things seriously. My prayer for you often, and you've heard me say it many times, is that you would be bold for the kingdom of God. But additionally today, where I'm going to add to that. My, my prayer for you is that God would give you a greater passion based on the information that you have to reach those who are far from you. That's one of the things Revelation actually does for you. So it's my hope that you would use this knowledge for the benefit of the kingdom, for equipping yourself, while at the same time translating that to a greater understanding of the grace of God on your own life. That He rescued you that's why we get to lift the cup and lift the bread. We would remember what he did for us. Closing thought before I read a paragraph for you. New Hope, to neglect the book of Revelation is to neglect the very word of God. He gave it to us for these reasons. So whatever you do, if you choose to study it, get to know Jesus better, the one who died for you and is taking you one day to be with him. We get these instructions from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 because we know that he's coming again one day. Paul includes that thought in this paragraph. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Pay close attention to this verse. For as often as you eat this bread, meaning this morning, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because he's coming again, right, New Hope? Paul's writing to the first century church. Paul believed Jesus was going to come in his lifetime. Every believer is supposed to be looking for the glorious appearing of Jesus. We're closer today than Paul ever was to the return of the king. And so he writes, when you lift this cup and you lift this bread, you're not only witnessing to his death for you, but that he's coming again. And that's why you get this warning. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you're new to New Hope, our requirement for you to take communion is that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't want to take it if you're not a believer, because this is a witness. It's a testimony saying, I believe our request of you is that you would take time to examine yourself before coming up to the table. There'll be people in the front here and in the back that will just remind you what you're doing. Pick up the cup. 
And within it, you'll find the bread and the juice together. Take it back to your seat and hold it. But before you come up, examine yourself. See where you're at in that relationship and when you're ready. Come get it. Take it to your seat and I'll talk to you. If you're physically able, would you stand with me? And take communion together, and we're going to close with a song of celebration in just a moment. But first, we recognize what Jesus did for us. We're told that on the night that he was betrayed, he held up bread, and he said, this is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up a cup. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, we thank you for the, the memory, the capacity to know what you did, that you've given us memory so that we can worship you fully. So we, trade, we, we trust and we ask that you would take what we have studied, that we would remember it, that we would use it for the advancement of your kingdom, and that your blessing would rest upon us for having spent time in your word this morning. We ask these things in keeping with your will and your purposes. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.